Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Andrea Bachner about her really fascinating new book, Beyond Sinology, Chinese Writing and the Scripts of Culture. This came out in 2014 with Columbia University Press. You're going to hear me say that word a lot in the ensuing conversation. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Andrea Bachner about her really fascinating new book, Beyond Sinology, Chinese Writing and the Scripts of Culture. This came out in 2014 with Columbia University Press. You're going to hear me say that word a lot in the ensuing conversation, fascinating. And you're going to hear me use modifiers like super fascinating, extra fascinating, and all of this is completely sincere. The book takes the idea of the Chinese writing and Chinese script, or put another way, a sinograph, and it looks at the ways that not only has the sinograph been reimagined and imagined in different media and different fields of the arts, but also the way that different media and different fields have themselves been produced and transformed in dialogue with the very idea of and interpretations of and the use of sinographs which can be equated with Chinese writing, but by the end of the book we learn that even thinking of sinographs as necessarily Chinese is itself an assumption that we should be critical of. So over the course of an introduction to conclusion and five body chapters, Bachner takes us into film, literature, poetry, advertisements, performance art, visual art, and several other different kinds of media in order to open up not just the way that we might think about script and culture, script and identity, script and nation, written and sonic or written and uh, visual, written and um, oral phenomenon, ways of communicating and ways of being that are specific to Chinese, but also more generally, she's using Chinese script and the sinograph as an example to open up some much larger themes and much larger ways of thinking about relationships between different media and forms of speech of communication, of writing, of production. It's a super fascinating, I'll say it again, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating book for all of these reasons, but also because over the course of the chapters, Bachner introduces us to a range of really, really interesting case studies from these various media that I've been talking about. So if you go into this book without much um, background in or familiarity with things like Taiwanese poetry, Malaysian Chinese literature, you're going to come out with, as I have, a reading list full of some really wonderful new materials to look at, some of which are actually available in translation if you don't read Chinese. 
So I'll stop there because the interview is quite extensive so that you can get right to it. But I'll say that I really highly recommend this book. I learned a ton from it. I'm still thinking through it. And it was really a pleasure to read as well. So enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Andrea Bachner about her new book, Beyond Sinology, Chinese Writing and the Scripts of Culture. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Andrea, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today about a book that I'm really excited about, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Carla. It's really a pleasure to be here and um, to talk. So, Andrea, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to work on comparative literature and to focus on Chinese literature for at least part of your focus? I was uh, always very interested in literature and when it came time to actually select a major in college and uh, in Germany, in the German system, you actually do have to select a major pretty early on, actually, before you enter university already, I didn't really know uh, what kind of literature to focus on, English or French or German. And so along came this discipline of comparative literature, which I hadn't heard about before. And so that was the solution of, okay, that really helps me combine everything. Um, And... um, so the interest in Chinese actually started relatively late um, in um, during my uh, MA, um, because in Germany you don't get a BA degree, you actually start straight uh, with an MA program. Um, it's a kind of B- a combined BA and MA program. So uh, for that combined BA uh, MA program, I focused very much on European literature, philosophy, um, literary theory. I also started to work on post-colonial literatures and Latin American literatures. And uh, slowly, my interest in something beyond Europe or beyond a, especially a European language, started to evolve. And different factors really played into that. At that time, my father was actually working in China, but I never got to go. Um, so for me, that was a kind of uh, in a way, personal connection that, however, remained very much latent. And on the other hand, I'd started to read some Chinese literature in translation, mostly in German and English translations, uh, some French translations, and they were actually not very good. So I had the impression I, I really missed out a lot by not reading in the original, and that made me start to learn Chinese, actually, uh, after I um, got my MA and then really develop it uh, very much during my PhD studies and make it uh, something that is very central in the context of my work, even though I work on a wide range of different literary and linguistic traditions and have a very strong interest also in literary theory. So the book that we're talking about today explores how the Chinese script, or what you call at various points in the book the Sinograph, has been imagined in many fields of the arts, including literature, film, visual art, performance art, architecture, design, and in different cultural contexts. And the book uses the Sinograph as a frame to look closely at relationships between language and script, media and culture, national identity, the sonic, the visual, the filmic, among many, many other kinds of realms that you're bringing together in this really wonderfully transdisciplinary work. So early in the acknowledgement section of the book, you explain that it began as a kind of side project. 
So can you talk a little bit about how you came to this topic and how you decided specifically to resolve it into the form of a book? Uh, sure. Um, so the book is not my dissertation, um, but it is uh, connected to the, some of the conceptual work I was doing in the dissertation, which uh, is actually a reflection, very theoretically driven reflection on inscription as a theoretical figure. So um, corporeal cuts, tattooing, um, things like that, and their resonances uh, in um, critical literary theory. One of the parts, only one of the parts, sort of steered me towards a Chinese language material, which after trying some avant-garde experimental writers uh, from the PRC, that didn't pan out for me. I happened upon the tradition of Malaysian Chinese literature through a course that David Wong um, taught at Harvard University. And there I discovered those wonderful diasporic writers, um, so Chinese who grew up in Malaysia, a lot of them now actually live and write in Taiwan, though, and who, live, uh, who write in Chinese, but really reflect on the script tradition of Chinese. And so, um, in a way, that was almost like a coda to the dissertation, which, however, in a way threw doubt on the whole dissertation as being something that still remained very theoretically, conceptually abstract. It was not engaging, except for that part, in historically and culturally specific uh, traditions of inscription. And so I really had the impression that before actually returning to a more theoretical reflection on inscription, I needed to work through the culturally specific tradition of sinographic inscription. And um, that was particularly interesting for me at that point. That was basically 2000, late 2007, 2008, because uh, of the whole emergence of this new discourse of the Sinophone. So thinking about Chinese, not as an ethnic description or national description, but with Shishume's, um concept of the Sinophones, Sinophone articulations of something that is really defined by uh, Chinese language and the multiplicity of Chinese languages, uh, languages in the plural, that's very important. But since I was working on inscription, I was very interested in thinking about the Sinographic as a supplement, as a kind of counterpoint, as intention with the Sinophone. And so this, in a way, brought me to write this book, which at the beginning I thought would be more of a literary-focused book on Chinese literature and reflections on the Chinese script. And then as I started to discover material, um, it just, in a way, went wild uh, with different interdisciplinary examples of um, typographies, of architecture, of film, and I didn't want to suppress those. So in a way, even though the literary texts are still there, some of them are, uh, it has actually grown into something much more interdisciplinary than I envisioned at the beginning, but I'm happy that it has taken that route. 
And it's really interesting to, that you're um, saying this and to hear you say that because, in fact, at least from the perspective of one reader, right, which is all I can really speak from, <laughs> it's, it's a book that really refreshingly and wonderfully is not just about literature. It really is more broadly about mediality, as you put it here, medium more broadly defined and the ways that literary scripts and other kinds of scripts produce and are produced by media of various sorts, not just literary media. And so this, um, whatever, however you came to that decision, um, it was a great decision. And I think it really makes the book into something that's well beyond simply a study of literature per se into something that's actually much more ambitious. Yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I really like the kind of shape it has taken, even though at times it was a really interesting process of finding all these things, but also uh, a challenge to then also develop the kind of um, toolkits to actually be able to speak about these very different ranges of materials. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was an exciting challenge. Can you actually, before we actually move into um, the chapters themselves, can you talk a little bit about that process? What were some of the methods and some of the major challenges that you faced in um, your project to gain the kind of familiarity and expertise with these very different kinds of media so that you could manifest um, them here in a project like this? Sure. Um, was, uh, what was most challenging about this project was this constant oscillation between finding so much material and so much different material and uh, sort of like have the tendency to actually uh, write more and more and include more and more case studies. And then on the other hand, the um, the tendency, and that's something that I like for my own work, um, really to preserve a conceptually um, cogent, a conceptually coherent uh, structure, framework, narrative. And so in a way, so these were like two tendencies that I had to balance um, where the book in its current form actually is uh, only a part of what I had uh, originally written after um, I had submitted it and the press wanted actually wanted a um, shorter book. Um, I then went through and actually cut out uh, quite a lot of parts and actually did uh, much more of a conceptual uh, editing and a kind of um, pruning towards a, a theoretical um, narrative and I think I'm actually very happy with that came out with how that came out now in terms of methodologies I in a way is basically relied on a conceptual framework the kind of fundamental basic arguments I wanted to really make with this book and relied on that conceptual structure to then in a way make up my methodology as I've found those materials, those examples that I felt dialogued best with or actually challenged some of my conceptual um, ideas. So very much, the process was very much not this planned, oh, now I'm going to develop my expertise in architecture because I want to include something. But this all of a sudden finding that somebody has designed an ideographic building in the shape of the Chinese character Ren for, for people or for person. And then to think, well, this is a very amazing example that would speak so interestingly to what I'm doing in the book. And then to start reading actually theory of architecture 
uh, iconic architectures. And so the process, in a way, was um, very much unplanned in that way. So a kind of finding the materials, being really roped in by the materials and fascinated by the materials, and then trying to work around it to create uh, an expertise of reading these different materials and examples. Oh, that sounds like an ideal process. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It, it did not feel that way. It felt <laughs> like, okay, I need this now. I don't have it yet. So there we go. But it was a very, actually very creative, very joyful process. So the book itself uh, concludes by, among other things, looking at this example of the Zhen-shaped building. Um, but then before then, the rest of the book is separated into or divided into five main chapters after the introduction. And each one of those chapters along the lines that we've been talking about in terms of uh, the book exploring media of various sorts and mediality, each of the chapters looks closely at the interface between writing and other entities. So bodies, images, sounds, semiotic systems, and technologies. And throughout these examples throughout the book, we see and you show us a constant and consistent tension between what you identify as competing desires that relate the Chinese script to larger transformations, be they global or digital. On the one hand, a desire for stability, and at the same time, a desire for adaptability. So to lead us into these five really wonderfully rich chapters, you introduce the book um, with an introduction on script politics, where, among other things, you remind us that there's no natural link between nat national or cultural identity and any one language or script. And to introduce these themes, you introduce the first of many, many, or what will be many, many fascinating um, and very timely case studies throughout the book. And this is a scene from the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in Beijing from 2008. You describe here the importance of the way that Chinese script was represented in this context. And um, so I'd love to ask you as the first question about really the body of the book to talk a little bit about that. Can you introduce what so significant about script in this opening ceremony for us and um, talk a little bit about what is significant about that case um, for demonstrating the larger argument you're using it to make in this part of the book. Sure. Um, so that uh, that part of the um, opening ceremony of the, Be the Beijing Olympic Games, which is called Chinese Characters, and it's the, really this part of showcasing, uh, this is 2008, right, August of 2008, of showcasing all the wonders of Chinese culture. And um, I was actually watching this opening ceremony um, when I was doing research in Taiwan with uh, some of my colleagues and students in a kind of summer school setting then. That was really an interesting context of um, a context that introduced a certain tension between this wonderful image of the uh, the Chinese um, the Chinese culture and uh, a place that in a way contests or is in tension with the nat uh, national um, body of uh, the PRC. So, um, but what I was interested in was not um, primarily one of those facile critiques of saying, so what we have here is just a really wonderfully crafted um, picture of China, fake picture of China, uh, which uh, puts up this wonderful facade because it has all these um, 
basically all these um, all these all this wealth and is really putting a lot of money and uh, manpower into it. But really, to think about this new state of China. Um, and this return to really acknowledging the Chinese script is something that is at once technological and actually also deeply rooted in Chinese culture. And what was really fascinating for me was that the showcasing of Chinese characters as one of these uh, wonderful achievements of culture, of Chinese culture, was not in the form of calligraphy, in the forms that we may be mostly in the West would actually um, uh, really think about when we think about Chinese script, but in a very technological facet of uh, actually a kind of um, printing, in the form of a kind of a printing press display with some LED panels. And uh, that was really hinting at a question of um, a digital updating of the Chinese script rather than thinking about the Chinese script and this uh, communion between body and script and calligraphy and the aesthetic. This really was, on the one hand, I think, a really tactical, strategical to hint at contesting Western culture. So the printing press with movable letters, right, that supposedly Gutenberg has invented, whereas actually it's a Chinese invention. And to really say, so uh, the Chinese script is one of the media that's best suited for the new digital media. At the same time, and that was, I think, the very fascinating thing about it is that I don't know how many of uh, you have seen the opening ceremony, but um, the script boxes of this um, display of a printing press at the end of this display actually opened up and showed us that uh, that human bodies were actually driving these boxes of script. And that's, I think, a very powerful message of the way in which the Chinese script in this new digital shape, in this shape that now actually challenges uh, the primacy of Western culture, is actually powered by a community, an idea of a collective of bodies, which is, on the one hand, a really interesting and fascinating idea. It's also a little bit frightening, right? We could even say that maybe here, and I think I punningly do so in my book at some point, that the prison house of language has been actually transformed into cages of script. And you've very nicely given me material to segue into the next chapter, mentioning the importance of bodies here. The first chapter, Corpographies, indeed explores relationships between the human body or human bodies and the sinograph. So in a section called Death and the Sinograph, you consider the link between Chinese script, materiality, death, and violence. And this is a really, really fascinating, um, one of many fascinating parts of the book. <laughs> you say here, I'm, I'm going to um, just kind of mention for listeners um, something that you describe here and then ask you to talk about it because sure. it's totally fascinating. So you mentioned that during the era of language reform and related to the idea of nationalism and the project of um, westernization or what has been called westernization, the Chinese language acquired a body, a dead one. So this is a very provocative uh, Chinese language acquired a body, a dead one. So can you start us off by, um, by talking about that? What does that mean um, and what kind of work is that doing in terms of the larger work that this chapter is doing in the context of the book? Sure. So um, the 
the dead body of the Chinese script, right, that was acquired or that I punningly say was acquired in the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, is um, in a way um, a consequence of um, semi-colonial, um, the semi-colonial situation in which all of a sudden, under the pressure of Western powers mostly, Chinese intellectuals themselves um, actually considered that the Chinese script was an outdated technology. Um, and the way in which that was expressed uh, in a lot of writings of language and script reformers, among them uh, such really famous figures as Lu Xun, right? And I won't go into more details, but... Um, the kind of the metaphors that were used here were really the metaphors of corporeality. So the the Chinese script was a, a rotten corpse uh, that could infect the bodies of um, the nation's citizens. Something that was so deceased written that it had to actually be transformed, sacrificed, as Lu Xun writes, um, radically changed, and the connection between this corporeal image of the Chinese script and the corporeal image of the Chinese nation is made up of the bodies of uh, its citizens, citizens is very important here, right? So the, the, um, the kind of stake of saying that the Chinese script is rotten, um, is a carrier of death, um, was not something that, um, that was only on the surface, but something that was seen as extremely dangerous for the national body. So as a kind of really as a kind of double contagion model between the script, um, those who use it, and then, of course, the, the nation body itself. And the chapter, at least this part of the chapter, goes on to explore also not just death, but the aspect of violence that you talk about. You um, talk here in this part of the book about the invention of Chinese as something that does violence to or disrupts signification in Western thoughts. So mm -hmm. You take us through the work of such thinkers as Kristeva, Derrida, Foucault, Lacan, and specifically introduce here um, an example of a Mexican author, um, Salvador Elizondo, um, showing us that this idea of the connection between uh, Chinese writing and violence is not just something that we see in the work of Chinese authors, um, but also here we have an example of an ideogram of a tortured body in a book mm -hmm. called Farabuf, a Chronicle of an Instant from 1965. So um, can you briefly just uh, talk a little bit about that book? And because for readers of this book um, who might be more familiar with, and for listeners who might be more familiar with people um, who are writing in Chinese or people who are writing about Chinese, this might be a really wonderful example that listeners and readers might not have otherwise thought of. In, in it's actually a very, very interesting novel, an experimental novel from the 1960s by a Mexican author, Salvador Elizondo, um, a novel that in the context of Latin American studies is really has been widely discussed. Um, and Elizondo, its author, was really extremely interested in Chinese culture. He even took actually Chinese lessons. Um, and uh, that novel is really an experimental kind of reflection on the the Chinese torture method of uh, death by a thousand cuts. Um, Elizondo is inspired by Georges Bataille. He was also very fascinated by uh, that kind of example of Chinese cruelty, uh, 
and the whole photographic tradition that um, those postcards that circulated at the beginning sort of like well, basically into the middle of the, the 20th century from the very last executions of, um, of that, that form of execution in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, now, what is really important here for me is the way in which Elizondo himself already doesn't only write from a very, uh, say, biased point of view about Chinese cruelty and Chinese execution. So there is that fascination with this culturally specific uh, tradition of cruelty. But where Elizondo already thinks about cruelty and especially the cruelty in conjunction with Chinese writing as a actually a medium in itself. So he um, figures the, the Chinese body in pain of the person who's executed that um, is actually uh, basically looked at in a photograph as a medium itself and as a way to actually think about the problem of mediality, the problem of mediation, of representation. Um, and this is really a case actually that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, I had to cut out a lot of that discussion, but it won't matter because um, I have another book actually in the pipeline writing it um, currently on Latin America and China, and Elizondo will be an important part of that book. So here, the example um, of Elizondo's Farabov, I think, was um, a little bit shorter and compressed. But I think it's uh, it's fascinating how the the tortured death body of uh, of a Chinese can become the way for a, a Mexican writer to think about what representation and signification means, what it means to. Um, introduce a materiality and a corporeality into writing and signification as such. Great. So I will look forward to talking with you about that book too. <laughs> it, it will be a couple of years yet. I can wait. I can wait. So the, the last part of this chapter, um, I won't ask you to talk too much about it um, purely because if I did start, then I would keep asking you questions about it because it's so fascinating and we'd never get to the rest of the book. But I'll mention for listeners so that they know it's here. The second part of this chapter, National Calligraphies, looks at experiments, um, really fascinating experiments by Chinese performance artists who use their bodies um, as a medium of, or as a kind of, uh, basically they're doing um, experimental um, performance art that use their bodies and Chinese scripts together as part of the performance. And so you talk about work such as Yang Zhichao's bronzing and branding. Um, and then later in that chapter, you also uh, talk about Zhang Yimou's hero and the importance of uh, corpography in that film. And so listeners who are particularly interested in um, experimental performance art, and I, and I think you should be listeners because it's really fascinating to look, um, and film um, can uh, look in particular at this part of the chapter. But also listeners interested in film will be fascinated, I think, by the next chapter, chapter two, iconographies. So this chapter looks closely at the link between the sinograph and the visual, visuality, and pays special attention to the idea that sinographs are pictographs. You look here 
at, in the first part of this chapter at early film and media theories that brought together and linked ideographic and hieroglyphic writing and used them to think through and think about the new medium of moving pictures. Um, this is a really fascinating part of the book. You start by introducing a work that's um, perhaps one of the more well-known works in studies mm-hmm. in Chinese script, Fenelosa's The Chinese Written Character as a Medium for Poetry, but you open that up into a way of thinking about sinographs that's, um, at least for me, um, much less familiar, which is using this to think through an idea of filmic representation and moving images. So can you talk about, in this context, this connection between sinographies and film? Um, how, what's important for us to know about the way that the sinograph was used to think through moving images and film in this period? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it's interesting. Film is really a medium in which the sinograph can actually occur in very different shapes. Uh, in uh, Zhang Yimou's movie Hero, that that Carla, that you have just mentioned, uh, it's more about a representation of the sinograph in the form of calligraphy. But in this part of the book, iconographies, I'm more interested in how actually Chinese writing for early film theory becomes a way of thinking about what happens when you have a technology of moving pictures? What what does what does this entail? And the interesting thing here is that um, it's really the pro, uh, the question not only of image, right? That you can I think um, really solve um, readily, right? I mean, photography had been around for a while, but of the question of movement and sequentiality. And so, as I argue in that book, in that part of the book. The idea of an ideographic script was actually really a conduit to thinking about um, moving pictures as a kind of writing, which at the same time is not a uh, really writing. So it's a kind of uh, in a different script, right? For example, we have... um, uh, Lindsay, who's an early uh, film theorist who thinks of a hieroglyphic of film. So film, the picture, the sequence of picture is like hieroglyphs. It is a sequence as a text, but at the same time, it functions differently from text since it's not read, it's iconic at the same time. And so early film theory is really invested in, on the one hand, finding this metaphor for this new medium, which can draw on actually known media, such as writing. But then on the other hand, it also needs to keep this tension between the image and the text intact. And there, uh, the hieroglyph, or also the Chinese written character, actually comes in handy as something that is writing. And at the same time, uh, since it's another type of writing, is not writing at all. And so it really becomes a metaphor for film as a new medium. But then I think also... We see it as a metaphor in a much actually broader sense of critical theory and literary theory. If we think of works by Derrida and his uh, formulation of écriture, or also critical theory, Frankfurt School's reflection on allegory um, um, and also the hieroglyphics of culture, for example, um, in the formulations by Adorno and Horkheimer. So this is really something that's not not only um, restricted to early film theory, but I think has a much broader importance and sometimes a kind of latent, hidden importance for um, 
much of the way in which critical theory constructs mediality and constructs representation, especially with mass media such as film. Now, the chapter, though, doesn't just stay within the medium of film, but goes on to explore for the second part of the chapter, really, really fascinating range of concrete poetry. So Mm -hmm. on not writing Chinese, the second part (laughs) of this chapter, and that not is in parentheses, this is the thing about having an oral um, conversation about a book that's about the connection between script and and the oral. Right. You have to sort of, I'm using my body to create parentheses, and you can't see it, but know that that's what I'm doing. So on not, um, hand parentheses here, writing Chinese, uh, you explore concrete poetry from Brazil, from France, from Taiwan, to help us think differently about the link between text and visuality in spaces where different languages, different media, and different cultures met and, and interacted. Now, one of the really fascinating things about this chapter is that you give us examples from Taiwanese poets who were writing concrete poetry in Chinese without being acknowledged as doing so, as you put in the book, from the so-called international (laughs) poetry movement. So it's both um, this really wonderful opening up of a a whole range of concrete poetry artists that readers and listeners may not know um, existed, but you also present um, for us here some really beautiful and very moving examples of Chinese language concrete poetry. So um, could you talk just a little bit about Taiwanese concrete poets and um, maybe some of your favorite, what one or two favorite examples of that work um, as you describe it in the book? Sure. Um, that's really rich tradition. Uh, and um, and I think one that's really not as acknowledged as it should be, as Carla uh, just said, it's, it's really in a way striking that the concrete poetry that came about as this like uh, multi-origin, really international mo- uh, movement in the 1950s and 60s uh, did really not include Taiwanese examples at all. And um, at least at the beginning, those two um, traditions, or well, maybe not two, but more traditions, um, were actually not in dialogue with each other. What is very interesting about Taiwanese concrete poetry is that it it originated relatively early in the 1940s, we could say, um, and that very clearly in an author such as Chan Bing, um, it originated in uh, the aftermath of um, Japanese occupation of Taiwan and the strange situation in which poets and writers found themselves uh, after the Japanese occupation was over, after the Second World War. Uh, that they had been trained in Japanese and were writing in Japanese. Now, all of a sudden, uh, they had to write Chinese or um, wanted to write Chinese again. And so, in a way, the concrete poem, uh, with its often very pictographic, uh, iconic use of Chinese characters, was the perfect uh, example or venue of doing that, since you could use kanji, but uh, you could write in something that was Chinese but, and not Japanese, but uh, you could get, a, got a, get away with uh, something that was maybe not quite Chinese text either. Um, and um, 
And so I think that's that's the kind of origin of this incredibly rich tradition that actually continues up to today. Another author, Chen Li, who is very well known, uh, not all of his poetry is actually concrete, um, but one of the most important po uh, poems, concrete poems, War Symphony, by him uh, uh, is actually is actually widely anthologized and widely known. And he continues to write concrete poetry um, up to today, really. Um, and it's very interesting. And so one of the most important points I want to make in this this part of the chapter is really that it's not about the iconographic, about the pictographic only, but that concretion is about a transmediation, a movement between different media and that this emerges in a transcultural, uh, intercultural situation, often as in the example of the, the Japanese, um, end of the Japanese occupation in Taiwan, in a context that is not pleasurably intercultural, but really a question of, uh, a really a kind of existential question of medium. And, um, yeah. And later on in the book, and, and we'll get to this, um, in a little bit, really, you go into and explore directly this idea that identity in various forms really is produced by and emerges out of transmediation and translation mm. practices. And in a way that I think for those of us who are interested in translation studies as well is really um, enlightening and very rich. So you mentioned the context of uh, the kind of aftermath of Japanese occupation of Taiwan, and that's also a theme that comes up in one of the examples from the next chapter, sonographies. Chapter three turns our attention to the relationship between writing and sound. And in two sections, you look in turn at different media and medialities in which this relationship is produced and which produces this relationship. After a section that I won't ask you to talk um, about, uh, just because, you know, purely, again, we'd be talking for another hour just about this film, but there's, there's a section called Muteness uh, mutinous envy, yes, which considers the silencing of the Chinese language and Western theoretical writing and also looks at muteness, um, at the sort of the productivity and the generativeness of muteness in a film by Ho Xiaoxian called City of Sadness. So again, for people interested in, in, in the sonic, in muteness, in speech, and in film, um, that's a, a special case and you might want to pay special attention to that. And then you go on in this chapter to talk about what you call sonographic glossolalia. Uh, it's actually sinographic glossolalia. Oh, it, it, it could be <laughs> sonographic glossolalia easily. Yeah, I'm transforming it because I'm so like, I, I was very into the sonic and sound. So sonographic, <laughs> sinographic glossolalia. Thank you so much. And forgive me for my miss. Uh, Speaking. So, sinographic glossolalia offers a critique of media politics and recent theoretical work that tend to equate sound with what you call resistance and marginality. Now, you not only um, talk about the idea of glossolalia here in this chapter, but also use an example to unpack this that's really fascinating. And this is Han Xiaogong's Dictionary of Ma Chiao. So, can you, um, as a way of opening up what's going on in this chapter, can you explain for listeners who may be unfamiliar? familiar with this idea. What is glossolalia as you're using it here? And how does this play out in this really fascinating dictionary of Machiao? Right. So glossolalia originally is a speaking in tongues, right? A kind of inspired um, kind of um, 
speaking in a tongue that nobody understands, almost like kind of religious heavily inspiration. And of course, it um, derives from the Bible. But um, what people are very interested in is uh, that, um, and so theorists like uh, de Certeau and others, is really that it's a kind of speaking in tongues that has no recognizable language. So it's in a way nonsense sounds or inspired sounds uh, or sounds that basically do not have any signification, do not have any meaning. So it is sound almost as pure medium, not basically put into the straight check it off signification, but freed as a medium. And this is what... Um, what theorists uh, were really fascinated by to think about sound uh, as a medium against signification, right? And so this is, uh, in a way, the kind of, um, well, I almost describe it as a kind of fetish in some of recent theory to um, invest the margins of speech, right? So it's speech, uh, it's a type of speech, it's a human sound, but it's not uh, actually circumscribed by signification. Now, uh, Han Chao Gong's uh, Dictionary of Ma Chao um, comes in here, um, and this is a little bit of a jump, but uh, the book is actually in the form of a dictionary right, by a writer from the PRC, um, and it tries to use um, actually dictionary entries to map out a whole world of one of those sent down youths um, to the countryside um, who's trying to make sense of his environment through uh, writing through the dictionary. Now, what's fascinating about the dictionary, and this is where sound comes in, right? Because otherwise you just say, oh, dictionary, well, this is a written form, and it is, of course, a written novel. Um, sound comes in because the dictionary uh, maps this... Um, this rural area, which has uh, its own dialect and uh, sometimes even its own sort of like topolect. So it is um, also in a way a sound map of that region, of that area. And what is interesting there is that it is, of course, written in uh, standard Mandarin, but the pronunciation of those topolects or dialectical ter dialect, uh, dialect terms is actually not standard Chinese. So the dictionary constantly has to mediate between the fact that um, readers, of course, want to voice those um, those um, dictionary terms in a standard form, but um, the dictionary has to provide, and that's often done in a pinyin transcription, has to provide the alternative voicing. So what is interesting here is then that the dictionary doesn't just work as um, the kind of uh, univocal bridge between, oh, this is the meaning of a term and that, that is its pronunciation and that is its written form, but that it actually scrambles up the relationship between the written form, the pronunciation, and the meaning. And this is really something that the novel place with uh, majorly in also very metafictional terms. And this is interesting. So it really thinks about sound uh, as in connection to script, but not as a univocal connection that would make it uninteresting as the kind of um, prejudice about 
uh, European alphabetic languages that it's just a transcription of sound when we write, which is, of course, not that true either, but that there is a really interesting tension between speech, the way we pronounce and the way we write. And uh, Han Shaogong's novel really elucidates that and I think points us towards an understanding of sound and sonographies, right, the writing or the scripting of sound that doesn't have to necessarily just um, invest um, a non-signification, a sound such as glossolalia with meaning, but rather that makes interesting and very complex links between writing and sound. And uh, I really make a pitch for the fact that this is a kind of connection that we should investigate in much more complex terms rather than being pushed to a kind of um, against a phonographic bias or towards a fetish of the glossolalic or the sonic turn that... Um, now thinkers are invoking, well, for the past 10 years or so uh, in um, critical theory, but also beyond a kind of essential graphocentric approach. So to really study the relationship between sound and writing and uh, study it as something that is complex and multiple. Awesome. I loved that chapter, by the way, and, and especially as you're kind of really enriching and problematizing and offering something really different that still speaks to what you just invoked, the sonographic turn or the kind of turn toward the sonic um, in a lot of the humanities, which I'm, I'm very interested in. Mm, me too, <laughs> but in a critical way also. Oh, yeah, no, yes. super, and the dictionary is just completely fantastic. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to read, and it's it exists in translation, so it's actually accessible. So as we move from the sonic um, to another context, we move to chapter four. Now, this chapter four, um, allographies, looks closely at literary experiments that challenge, again, the equation of a script and identity by making Chinese writing strange or uncanny, or put another way, making it allographic. Now, you look at um, a number of really fascinating case studies in this chapter, but one that really stuck out for me was the work by a Malaysian Chinese writer um, who sort of invents a crypto-Chinese in a story called Allah's Command. So can you mm. talk about that um, in the context of the larger work that you're doing in this chapter? Right. So this is a very, it's a fascinating short story by one of the uh, better known Malaysian Chinese authors who actually lives in Taiwan now, and Kim Chu, or in the standard Chinese Huang Jin Shu, um, Allah's Command. Um, so this is a story which um, invents the scenario of, um, so Malaysia, right? Um, the scenario of a Malay um for Chinese Malaysian individual who has been engaged actually in uh, communist um, sort of revolutionary um, activities and who is sentenced to death but then spared by his Malay Muslim friend. And instead, he has to renounce his Chinese heritage. He is actually um, banned to an island and has to just live out his life um, under basically... Um, ad ad um, <clears throat> Uh, basically as a Muslim, uh, not to write Chinese any longer and just be really a part of Malay culture. 
But at the end of his life, he decides that he has to write his epitaph. And uh, in order to do so, he tries to craft a Chinese that's not recognizable as Chinese uh, and tries to go back to ancient forms of Chinese, such as seal script. And what he produces then is what I call a kind of crypto Chinese. So it is a Chinese that is not recognizable by anyone but him. So this story really, I think, puts pressure on the question of a kind of scriptural loyalty, right? Of, um, I am Chinese, so therefore I have to use the Chinese script. But in this very movement of saying, so I'm going to go back on this betrayal of my cultural heritage of having lived my whole life as a Malay and Muslim in order to escape uh, the death penalty, now I'm um, I have to go back to Chinese. But what is produced as Chinese is actually undermining the whole tradition of Chinese script because it is not recognizable, it's not intelligible by any Chinese community of speakers and readers. And so this is a way in which the author and Kim Cho actually reflects upon not only the different cultural tensions that are at play in uh, in Malaysia, but also on the, the kind of essentialism of thinking about the Chinese script is the marker of identity, whereas it itself, um, especially in this like crypto Chinese form, is actually much more uh, multiple, much more hybrid, um, much less um, expressive of any Chinese heritage. And that's really, that's really an interesting story to think about. The story then also has a whole metafictional frame of, um, of, um, of actually being supposedly written. So it has a frame story of being supposedly written by um, somebody who doesn't write correct Chinese because uh, he has forgotten a correct Chinese like the individual right who hasn't been able to u uh, use Chinese throughout his life but then there's also actually um, a little quote from the Quran at the beginning of uh, the, the short story and then there is a little parenthesis saying that this story has been translated um, uh, from the Malay so it's a, it's a really interesting sort of like double, triple layered reflection on what the Chinese script might mean in a context of intercultural and interscriptural pressure, interreligious pressure. But the answer is not that the Chinese script has to be rescued and survive um, but that actually even maybe the kind of st a strange essentialist move of uh, I have to express myself in Chinese and Chinese script then actually uh, results in something that is absolutely counterproductive. So Chinese itself is a kind of allography as strange to itself. Mm. So thank you so much. Now there's a second part of this chapter that again, I'm just going to mention and not ask you to talk about because once we got started, um, we wouldn't stop because it's so fabulous. <laughs> and I'm going to put in a request that um, you or yes, in the future, please write an entire book about this stuff because it's so <laughs> awesome. This is a section called graphic parasites. And for other punctuation nerds like me, this section of the book considers punctuation marks as quote, tiny parasites on the body of language. And both explores um, the 
thoughts and writing of people like Derrida and Adorno on punctuation marks, and also looks um, closely at some really fascinating experiments with punctuation marks and other script systems by Taiwanese author Wu He. Um, so again, for listeners who are similarly obsessed with punctuation and its histories and literatures, turn to the second part of chapter four, because it's really fascinating. So this brings us to another uh, fascinating chapter, and this is chapter five, technography. So we move from allographies and Allah's command to technographies. This chapter considers how the digital turn has impacted both the idea and uses of the sinograph. And you look at a number of works in this um, section, some of which are going to be more familiar to readers and others um, perhaps not, that explore this kind of intersection between technographic or uh, technological media and the sinograph. After a section that looks closely at the work of artist Xu Bing um, and also a poet Yang Lian, you turn to look at something um, called Martian script. <laughs> now, I am completely um, embarrassed to say this is the first that I um, knew of Martian script. It's completely fascinating. And for other uh, Luddites like myself um, who might not know that this exists, um, could you explain for us in the context of the work that the chapter is doing, what is this amazing, fabulous thing called Martian script? And what do we need to know about what's happening in Martian script in order to understand the nuances of what you're arguing in this chapter? So Martian script is actually a Chinese internet language, but describing it as an internet language already falls short of what it actually is. But what is interesting about it is that it's so much in flux that it is actually difficult to describe. And by the time you're reading what I've written about the Martian script, uh, probably the Martian script has evolved or maybe even disappeared or uh, we don't know. It's interesting to see what the future brings for this kind of experiment. But what it is basically, it came out of... Um, um, just random errors when you actually input Chinese characters, uh, which are mostly input phonetically. So um, Martian language now, it, it exists uh, in the PRC, Hong Kong, Taiwan, basically anywhere where people are using computers, cell phones, tablets uh, in Chinese. Um, originated probably in Taiwan or Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, most likely. Uh, as a kind of series of um, kind of uh, input errors, right? So you put in phonetic uh, sounds and then uh, the computer actually commutes them to Chinese characters, but you actually select the Chinese character that is not the right one. And that then, if you systematize that, actually leads to a kind of coding, almost like a... A, um, a cryptographic system, even though it's not that complex and it's fairly random, that allows um, users of a certain age group, of a certain sort of right region and social group to actually communicate with out outsiders, not totally understanding what they're actually writing. So... Um, from a kind of error that's um, that's very common in the input methods of Chinese on the computer, then comes a kind of like youth culture jargon that is used on computers. Now, um, that sounds kind of simplistic, but it's actually not because these uh, sort of like 
uh, arbitrary errors then get systematized in different ways and the fact that so um, uh, characters are actually substituted by um, homophones, but the homophones then can sometimes also be depending on uh, where the the user of Mar Martian arts or actually creative Martian, Martian language uh, is actually situated, uh, can depend on a regional language, Chinese language. So in Taiwan, maybe the way somebody would um, pronounce a character in Taiwanese rather than Mandarin or also in Cantonese in Hong Kong. Uh, and then they're really interesting um, also um, ways of um, sort of like making um, Chinese characters cryptographic in which some of the radicals are changed of a character or a character that has sort of two components is split. And so it's really something that is not purely phonetically oriented, but that actually also works with some experimentation with the form of Chinese characters themselves. Uh, it is a very hybrid script. It has um, some letters, alphabetic letters. It has um, some numbers that it uses. The uh, Taiwanese version of it uses sometimes Zhuyin symbols, which are phonetic transcription symbols. And what is so interesting about it is that one might think, okay, it's an internet jargon, so it's actually just for abbreviation purposes to be able to actually uh, type um, Chinese on the computer or the cell phone with more ease, but actually not all of the tendencies of Martian scripts are actually for abbreviation. Sometimes it, uh, the input process is actually longer for Martian, um, but it's really a kind of almost like cryptographic device which creates an in-group as a computer um, or community that is connected through the computer. And what is so fascinating for me is that it's not simple. It's not a kind of cryptographic code where you say, oh, I substitute A for B, right, or this for that symbol, but that it is flexible and just really activate um, all the different facets of Chinese script, the phonetic, the graphic, the, the kind of uh, modular, uh, the the translation of sound, um, alphabetic uh, numbers. So it really, in a way, activates almost all the the ways in which we read or understand or parse and um, and actually decrypt language and writing. Now, in the last part of this chapter, I also just want to mention for listeners: there's also a really wonderful exploration of work by a Taiwanese poet, Xiaoyu, that engages some of these same themes, but in a medium that's really um, quite different, but also related in interesting ways. And so you take us through the work, The Disappeared Image, and also the poetry collection, Pink Noise, um, by this Taiwanese poet, Xiaoyu. And I want to just let listeners know that that's there, because it's also a really wonderful explication of some really... Um, fabulously fascinating work to think through or with which to think through these larger issues that readers might not otherwise be familiar with. So the last ex example that I'm going to ask you to talk about is one of the examples that you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation. So I can't let you go without asking you to talk a little bit about this. And this is something that comes up in the context of the conclusion beyond Sinology. 
And this is where you're reflecting on ideographic architecture, focusing on the example of the Ren building by Danish architectural firm Big. So can you talk a little bit about that building? What, um, what for you is so fascinating about that building and how does that help bring together some of the arguments uh, from the book in this concluding format that you've chosen to use um, in this last part of the book? Sure. Uh, what's interesting about this, I mean, on the one hand, the building is so iconic in the form of the um, of the character Ren for a person or people. It's I think it's scheduled for construction uh, in Shanghai, but it hasn't been done yet. Um, and what is interesting about it is that, in a way, the architects, uh, the Bjarke Ingels group, um, or big chance upon the fact that what they have constructed or what they have conceived of as an architectonic shape actually is a Chinese character. They originally designed it for a location in Denmark um, where people didn't like it, so it didn't get the bit. And then uh, somebody actually um, alerted them to the fact that this is the, uh, in the shape of the Chinese character. And it was a design that um, all of a sudden uh, they presented it in Shanghai. They presented it for, even for the expo, even though it didn't get that bit. But it was really, um, people were really excited about it and hailed it as the Chinese, the Shanghai Eiffel Tower. Um, it um resembles the shape a little bit, I have to say. They hailed it as the supreme expression of the merging of Chinese tradition and modern architecture. And all this, of course, in the whole context, and that's something that is very fascinating about all this hype of architecture, iconic architecture, star architecture in China. This is something that has been researched and discussed a lot in recent years, really. But what I find interesting here is on the a couple of different things. On the one hand, now the the kind of uh, reverse tables of that a Danish firm actually comes up with kind of mimicry of something that reads in Chinese in order to sell it um, as a building project in China. So the fact that the script here, the Chinese script, is totally uh, disconnected from any kind of cultural essence of who produces it or who scripts it, but is actually used as a kind of mimetic um, facade uh, to make something um, well, sell better, really, actually, right? It's also, I think, a good a sign of a kind of reversed um, sort of like power balance in a kind of like global network of circulations. The other part that I really find interesting about this example is the interesting sort of, um, embodiment, and so we're coming back to material embodiment bodies here of uh, Chinese script in this form of the building, which is for the people, not really for the people, it means the people, right, or the person, but it's actually not a building that is really accessible to the uh, Chinese demos, uh, if we can even talk about the Chinese demos, really, right? So the people as such, it's a hotel complex, uh, conference facilities. So, um, so what is interesting here then is that there is a kind of disconnect not only um, between what the 
building means and what it does, but also a kind of interesting, um, so this disconnect is almost like overlooked because the connection between the Chinese-ness and the fact that it is a Chinese uh, character is then all of a sudden so strong, at least to, to some eyes. And so um, I found it a good example to actually conclude the book as almost a kind of like example coda. Do you've seen that the exam that the book is very much a kind of um, sort of like line of argument with case studies? So the last case study here, because I think it really opens up the question of the script and cultural identity or alterity to something beyond. Um, to, to something beyond the bounds of one culture, but also uh, to something that is more really important in a global circulation of things, where all of a sudden the Chinese character becomes a commodity. Right? It um, becomes a facade of a certain identity, but the connections between this facade and the identity are really extremely slim and extremely problematic. Not that they were less problematic before globalization, but it's very interesting to see that in this global circulation of icons, the Chinese script now uh, enters a phase in which it has become uh, extremely interesting and extremely marketable. Wonderful. So, and I'll just mention for listeners that the conclusion ends with a reflection on what it might mean to talk beyond Sinology and that Sinology in two different senses, S-I-N-O and S-I-G-N-O. So, Andrea, thank you so much for making the time. It's a, well, congratulations again. It's an extraordinarily rich book. And even though we've talked a little thank bit you. about the corpographies, iconographies, sonographies, allographies, and technographies, there's a ton of material, um, as is, I'm sure, clear to listeners that we um, barely scratched the surface of or didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very, very rich study. Given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I think so connecting to your your sort of um, short summary of uh, those titles right uh, in a way um, I think what is what was important to me was really to think um, about the medium of script and the the Chinese script as my specific example in its um, connections to other media, how it really works as a connector between different different realms, between different uh, different media, and so I see this. Of course, it's a case study of the Chinese character. It's very contemporary. Uh, some people might say so. Well. What is the kind of historical trajectory of the Chinese script? And it's, of course, immense, and it's something one book can't cover. But what I really hope to achieve in this book is to, uh, in a way, model a way of thinking about mediality and cultural identity on the one hand, and on the other hand, to think about the way in which a medium, uh, the type of media, and our understanding of media becomes very, very crucial to the way in which we do our work as intellectuals, as researching something like China, where it is about not only the way in which China scripts or writes, but also about the way in which we script and write China. 
So Andrea, you've mentioned a little bit um, in the, the early part of our conversation, um, a next project that you're working on. Um, but do you, did you want to speak a little bit more about that? And in brief, um, the version, <laughs> the way that I'm asking this, it's basically <laughs> to get at what's next for you? Um, what's currently inspiring you? And now that the book is out, what's occupying you? Sure. Um, so I have actually different projects that I'm working on at the moment. The first one, which I'm almost through with, and so hopefully will come out, well, not in in the not too far future, is um, a book on inscription, on inscription as a theoretical figure, and it really is a prehistory of post-structuralism. So to really think about the way the figures, the metaphors through which we think today by way of figures of corporeal inscription. So that's one. And that uh, book doesn't have any Chinese content. Um, the next uh, book that I'm actually also actively working on is the book I've mentioned that will look at Latin American cultures and Sinophone cultures from the 19th century up to today, so a very contemporary. And what I want to do is actually a reflection on comparison and on the rules and kind of um, latent patterns of comparison through the case studies of uh, Latin America and the Sinophone world. And this is really a kind of emerging discipline of trans-Pacific studies that now looks between Asia and the southern part of the Americas more than, say, um, Asian American studies in its conventionally understood form. Um, but what I'm interested in is um, to think about the types of connections that exist between those cultural realms or regions. And so the chapters will be actually case studies of different types of connection. One will be on diaspora, one will be on uh, word literature, so textual circulation, one will be on orientalist readings of the other culture. This is where Elizondo comes in and the question of uh, Chinese cruelty as a cultural marker and a pattern for cultural circulation and also kind of analogy. So um, this will take the shape of actually to think about representations of cannibalism in Latin America and China. So something that um, actually opens up the way in which we compare or think uh, about cross-cultural mapping differently, not only uh, by actually invigorating a different uh, type of different part of the kind of trans-Pacific, but also by thinking beyond uh, regional or even uh, textual, intertextual world literature connections between these two uh, cultural traditions. Best of luck with that work, and I'll look forward to talking with you about um, at least some of that when it comes out. <laughs> um, so thank you again, Andrea. Um, it's, a, it's really been a pleasure, and it's really been a delight to both read the book and talk with you about it. Thank you so much. This was uh, a lot of fun, actually. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.